Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 96. Be careful with buying things. If you think you need something, start, just start without and buy what you actually do need. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. You're growing more than grass. You're growing a healthier ecosystem to help your cattle thrive in their environment. You're growing your livelihood by increasing your carrying capacity and reducing your operating costs. You're growing stronger communities and a legacy to last generations. The grazing management decisions you make today impact everything from the soil beneath your feet to the community all around you. That's why the Noble Research Institute created their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course to teach ranchers like you easy-to-follow techniques to quickly assess your forage production and infrastructure capacity in order to begin grazing more efficiently. Together, they can help you grow not only a healthier operation, but a legacy that lasts. Learn more on their website at noble.org slash grazing. It's N-O-B-L-E dot org forward slash grazing. Be sure and listen in the upcoming events for grazing courses coming near you. On today's episode, we have Jared Lumen. You have probably listened to him before as he's the host of the Hard Quitter podcast. We talked about his journey going back home to the farm where they have Red Angus and he ran Herefords for a little while and how they're managing their cattle as well as utilizing some alternative methods of grazing for so that he doesn't have to feed as much hay. It's a wonderful episode and if you've listened to the Herd Quitter podcast, I'm sure you'll want to hear more about Jared and what he's doing. However, before we talk to Jared... 10 seconds about my farm and today on the podcast with Jared as well as a few weeks back when we had Jordan on talking about that warm weather up north in Minnesota and thereabouts we're warm here in Oklahoma northeast Oklahoma the forecast is looking like really nice weather through the end of February uh, grass is starting to peak out. I'd mentioned that last week. It's just continuing. You can see some clover out there green, fescues green, lots of things starting to green up. In fact, when you drive down the road, you can look out on the pastures and see some green that's besides the wheat pasture. So it's always an exciting time. I think springtime on the farm is most people's favorite. It's always one of my favorites, just the the opportunity to try what I've learned since last year, what I messed up on last year, and see if I can improve upon it. It's almost like a clean slate in some ways. Uh, soon, cows will be Kevin. We have hair sheep lambing right now. Not on purpose, but they are. I've got about 30 ewes with lambs right now. The goal was to lamb them in May. But obviously, I had a ram or two get out. I knew that was the case and was expecting it, so it didn't surprise me. And 
I'm not sure how many is going to go ahead and lay them early. But right now they're doing good. We've had really favorable weather, which is really nice. Don't forget, if you're not part of the Grazing Grass community on Facebook, hop over there and search for Grazing Grass community and join it. Also check out our Patreon. We have a bonus episode with Eli Mack coming up on there shortly. But that's enough about my farm and the rest. Let's talk to Jared. Jared, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're here today. Oh, thanks, Cal. I, I'm excited to be here. It's uh, an honor to join you on the Grazing Grass Podcast. You put out great content, so the fact that you considered me means either you're maybe not as smart as I thought you were listening to your other podcasts, or or maybe I'm, <laughs> I've got something to share, so I appreciate it. Sadly, I, I think it's both, <laughs> So, but we'll, we'll move sure, on. Sure. Jared, to get started, tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation. Yeah, sure. So I am, uh, oh gosh, you know, some of those people have these great answers. I'm a fifth generation farmer. I don't know how many generations <laughs> yeah. our family's been farming here in Southeast Minnesota. I uh, want to ask my grandpa that back in the day, he said, we've been farming since we got off the boat that brought us here. So we've been farming for quite oh, a yeah. while and uh, we've got quite a few lumens here in Southeast Minnesota, but I, I farm with my dad and uh, both of our wives, my dad's wife, Terry, and my wife, Valerie. Um, we're running a little bit of cropping, a few hundred acres of row crops, some conventional no-till and some organic row crops. And then our primary grazing-based enterprises are uh, registered ridding is seed stock herd. We, we raise bulls for Faro Cattle Company. And so we've got about 230 uh, registered Red Angus cows that uh, that we're running here in southeast Minnesota. Um, I guess something about the context of our area is we're primarily in row crop country. And so the pasture that we have is it's uh, mostly like the ground that's not good enough to be farmed, the stuff that's too rocky, too wet, too hilly, too many oh, trees. Yeah. And so there's 30 acres there, 40 acres here. And so we got like 550 acres of grass, but it's spread over eight different sites. So that's one of the challenges of our context is we're kind of spread out. And that's from 10 miles west of the home place to 13 miles northeast. So that's uh, part of the challenges we get to deal with. But also because most folks are crop farmers, uh, we're, we're maybe able to be a little more competitive in the grazing business because there's not as much competition. So it's a, it's a pro and a con. Oh, very good. Now, I've got some questions on how you're managing those yeah. smaller acreage with your herd. But before we get there, did you always know you wanted to be a grazer? No, actually. It's a good question because when I grew up, I wanted nothing to do with the cattle. <laughs> it's my least favorite thing <laughs> of it all. I When I, I grew up, I loved sitting in a tractor. It was my favorite thing to either be doing row crop work or I enjoyed making hay. Uh, and then wasn't actually until I was done with college and I realized because of our farm, we have a few pastures that will never be farmable. I was like, we're going to have cattle, so I might as well buy some cattle and get into the business. Once I got into the business of grazing and, and beef cattle and cow-calf and managing a herd and seeing what they can do on the land, that was where my love of cows really and grazing really came from. It's relatively recent, and now it's funny because I graduated here just over ten, just like ten years ago, and uh, so in most of my life I wanted to be a crop farmer. But now, if I could have my way, we would have everything in grass, and we wouldn't be doing crops at all anymore. So definitely changed. I know when I went through college, which was 
in case anybody's wondering, more than 10 years ago. <laughs> um, one of my good friends, we, we both went to dairy, but he was very much about row crops. And he he used the dairy as a way to farm more. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because he could, he could grow grain for the dairy and, and make it more effective and actually using the dairy to you know, process or value add to the yeah. the grain he grew, which I came from it. I wanted to graze. I wanted to do the New Zealand style <laughs> grazing animals. And I just, we didn't get there, but it was very interesting, his philosophy on that. I need to check in with him and see how he's going with that because yeah. he loved nothing better than to spend a whole day planning or, or something. I've never yeah. farmed. So yeah, whatever he's doing now. Sure. Man. Yeah, no, that's funny. I mean, your mindset's very much like what my dad's was. We actually, my, I grew up on a grazing dairy, and I never wanted anything to do with it until, again, here lately when I kind of found a passion for grazing. And now looking at the numbers, the grazing dairy has some of the most potential to generate revenue in a grazing enterprise, especially on smaller acres, than like anything else. And so it's a really appealing oh, yeah. enterprise, especially for someone getting into the business of grazing to generate enough revenue to make a living off of on a relatively small acreage, the grazing dairy has got a ton of potential. And every now and then I'm just like, dad, Val, my wife, what do you think? Should we get back into the grazing dairy? And they are all, well, my wife doesn't, she's maybe not so excited about it. And dad's kind of like, that's going to be you. If you, if we do that, it's all on you. And oh, yeah. I'm not that excited yet. So <laughs> I'll see. Well, I, I am, I've mentioned this numerous times, I am dying to buy a milk cow or mm -hmm. some dairy goats because I, I just love that. Um, I grew up on dairy and I knew I wanted to dairy. Now, yeah. how I was going to get there, lots of debate. But the the thing that's keeping me from pursuing that more, the old dairy barn that used to sit right here behind my house blew down in like 2016 we had a i don't think it was it wasn't a tornado it was straight line winds but it lifted that whole barn off the foundation and threw it across my driveway wow and so now i've got a slab out there and i don't have a dairy barn if i had a dairy barn the conversation would probably or not a whole dairy barn yeah. i mean i'd have the structure i wouldn't have the equipment but sure it would make me much more tempted to, yeah. to be going there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that's the big investment. Like the grazing business, one of my favorite oh, yeah. things about it is the low upfront overhead costs that you have to put right. into it. But the dairy, that's the one downside of the dairy part is there is a bit more upfront cost to get that parlor set up. But what your goals are, it could be worth it. So when you got those, so you came home from college and got some cows? Yeah. Yeah. So I mentioned we're cooperative producers for Feral Cattle Company, and we've always been, I shouldn't say always, long time ago we had Simmental, but for the last like 30 years of our farm or more, we've been registered Red Angus cows. And uh, when I was, the, the fall before I was graduating, it was fall of 2014, there was another cooperative producer in Feral Cattle Company who was selling his herd of Herefords. And uh, so they were kind of similar, low input, forage-based Hereford cattle. And they wanted to keep them within the Feral Cattle Company program so they could keep marketing bulls. And I was thinking, you know, maybe this would be an opportunity for me to have something of my own. And My dad had just purchased a little more land, so we had a little more grass and we needed to expand somewhat. So it seemed like a logical option. Uh, 
long story short, it wasn't too long. And we decided to get back out of the Herefords pretty quick and just focus on the Red Angus. They just weren't quite to the level of where our Reds were. And it was like, I could spend the next 10 years trying to make our Herefords as good as our Reds, or I could just have the Reds that we already have and not deal with 10 years of headaches. So we, oh yes. yeah, we made that shift to hundred percent Reds again, but yeah, that was, it, it was a great way to start anyway, if nothing else. I know one thing that I see, I don't know if I'd say fairly often, but I do see this happening. A um, son or daughter comes into operation and they adjust that breeding program of livestock. So, so for your case, now you were starting your own, but you were going with Herefords where your parents had done Red Angus. I've seen it where the family has always done limousine and now they're doing some other breed or, yeah. or they've, They've always had the red version. Now they're going to the black version. Mm -hmm. And I know coming out of college myself, you know, I wanted to to push the dairy more towards grazing. And dad, dad was more, we're bringing in the grain. If you can do it without costing us any money, then we'll go with it. But mm -hmm. I was still learning at the time. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was... It was probably mostly just a decision out of not even thinking that the Herefords were better or anything. It was just like, if I'm going to have my own cows and you're going to have your cows, maybe it'd be simpler to differentiate our herds with a color difference. And, right. And also there was however many 25, 30 producers within Feral Cattle Company and like only one or two Hereford growers. So I was kind of oh, like, maybe yeah. there's some potential here to diversify our income a little bit not be 100% reliant on the Red Angus breed for our income because there's always that fear of, will there be more Red Angus than buy, bull buyers? And so maybe by diversifying, we might oh, have a little yeah. protection against that. So that was the decision-making right. process sense. behind it. But those Herefords, they just hadn't had quite as long as the Red Angus had had in moving in this direction. And they had a few issues that I just, yeah, they didn't didn't seem worth the hassle <laughs> to... Oh time yeah, trying to yeah. all fixed. So now you mentioned there before your dad became a cooperative producer mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. Pharaoh Cattle Company, he had simmentals. Yeah, so my grandpa, our our farm as a whole, and I don't know if this gets into more detail than you want on our farm history, but it's totally changed. I think it's really interesting. So okay, good. Well, then <laughs> I'll see if you feel the same way afterwards. My grandpa. Uh, back in like the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, was farm very much progressive, high input, everything. And he was milking a couple hundred cows in a high input scenario, a few hundred registered Simmental, big framey cows and oh, a yeah. few hundred sheep all registered and seed stock sheep and, and everything farming over a thousand acres, him and his brother were farming together. And, um, it was a very high input, very progressive scaled commodity farm at that time. And uh, we had an exchange student. They had a lot of foreign exchange students for labor to help with all that work and the haying and the milking. There was a guy from New Zealand that came over and told my grandpa that everything you're doing is wrong. <laughs> you're doing everything oh. wrong. It's just totally out of whack. And you're 15 years behind us over in New Zealand. And uh, I just give so much props to my grandpa because he could have been so offended. And he's like, what? You know, we're, oh, we're yeah. some of the most progressive farmers and everyone looks at us with respect. And, and uh, but he didn't. He, he said to my dad, you, you should go over to New Zealand and figure out what they're talking about, what this guy's talking about. And so my dad went and spent eight years in New Zealand. And oh, uh, wow. 
and or not excuse me eight months <laughs> not eight years eight months eight months yeah very different it, either way still impressive <laughs> yeah and learned he worked on a two stations a dairy a grazing dairy and then a grazing beef and deer station and brought that home and in the meantime while my dad was in college my grandpa and his brother split off farms and and grandpa was no longer a dairy. He was just kind of a commodity beef and crop farmer. And so my dad went off and started a grazing dairy of his own. And ever since then, they kind of focused all of the grazing more on a low input type grass-based animal. Oh, yeah. And my grandpa got rid of the simmentals and switched to red angus. And um, and yeah, so that's kind of where the shift came from. He just didn't see the future in that super tall lanky gutless simmental for the the right type of animal and and yeah that shift came out of there but yeah it's weird to think where we could be if that new zealander had never came to us our farm oh, we yeah. could we could be broke <laughs> or we could still be farming <laughs> the same way as everybody else I, I don't know we do not have any simmentals here but simmentals were my first love <laughs> as breeds of cattle yeah i can remember um so my grandpa dairied and he AI'd like all dairymen do. Mm-hmm. And when those exotic breeds started coming in in the late 60s, early 70s, he started breeding cows to, to those breeds. And um, and Simital was one he'd used quite a bit. And I remember as a kid, probably, I don't know, four or five, I had a bottle calf that was half Simital, half Hosting. Mm-hmm. A nice charcoal color. Mm-hmm. I loved I love the color of it and stuff. That was my calf. And then shortly after that, my dad had went to a, an auction and purchased a Simital bull auction. And he purchased a three-quarter Simital bull, quarter of horned Hereford bull. And um, we used that, that for years. Of course, we're talking the 70s. I guess we sold all those cows when we started dairying because we started dairying when I was 13 and we moved out with my grandparents. But during that time, I found the, the cattle of the road book, and, and Simital has always fascinated me. It's just that they don't fit my model. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, it's funny now because, well, Kit, I've heard people say, like Kit Farrow, that Angus have out Simmentaled the Simmental, and now Simmental are oh. oftentimes considered the more moderate breed as opposed to some of the oh. Angus. and. I know people with Simmental yeah. that are probably better grazers than a lot of the Angus and Red Angus out there. So, yeah. That, but as a whole, as a general, the breed, yeah, it wasn't exactly known for its, its moderate grazing efficiency kind of an animal. That's for sure. And and then the exciting thing is they've started bringing in the milky or the milk versions of Simmental. Of course, they go by different names, mm-hmm. the Montes mm-hmm. or the oh, sure. Black V yeah. and... yeah. The other, which which I think is fully fascinating, and actually, that's where I lean towards. I'd love to get some Fleckby heifers mm. to graze and mm-hmm. to milk. But yeah. that's enough about me. I'm, <laughs> I'm talking way too much. This <laughs> is about you and your journey. <laughs> well, we'll we'll save that conversation for when you're on my podcast. So, oh, okay, that perfect. There we go. That yeah. works. Yeah. So when you got these heifers, these Herefords in, mm-hmm. sorry, got these Herefords in. You were already grazing red Angus yeah. uh, for PCC. So did you have your infrastructure in, or did you have to go in and do anything to, to get started with it? Yeah. No, we, we pretty much were already set up for grazing. Uh, part I did mention how we picked up a farm 
that, that we yes. that was part of the reason why we got more cattle. So there was infrastructure going up there, but that would have had to be done whether I got the Herefords or not. But uh, my I, I benefited largely again from my ancestors, my grandpa, in his not being too prideful to change, and my dad in the early two thousands. He put in a ton of infrastructure on our main farm. Everything is perimeter and even interior fence with railroad ties and high tensile electric and oh, underground yes. water lines running with winter waters at several points and then above ground water is running off of them. So we had water line infrastructure and fence infrastructure throughout our farm. We've uh, improved and increased some in my time, but most of that, the the backbone of it was already in place before I ever came home. Uh, so I was fortunate for that. I remember a lot of that being done when I was a kid, but I couldn't, there's hundreds of railroad ties that, that I don't know if you've built a railroad tie fence. That's all, those things are heavy. And uh, I'm <laughs> grateful to have missed out on a lot of that. And now when we build new fence, most of that's done with fiberglass fence posts instead of railroad <laughs> ties. And that makes life a lot simpler, but yeah, I'm fortunate to have benefited from the work of past generations for sure on the infrastructure side. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And those interior fences, you're using high tensile wire? Yeah. Yeah. And then for the exterior fences, what kind of, are you doing high tensile there yeah, as well? Yeah, it's all high tensile. And, and we actually, we started with interior and everything being like, I think at one point when dad built it, early 2000s was like six or eight wires for sheep. He went big in sheep. Oh, yeah. And then got out of sheep a few years later. Um, and since then, we've been pulling wires off of old fences and using them on new fences and stuff. So we don't have six or eight wire anymore, but it's all still two or three wire high tensile electric on the main farm, which is nice. Now, I know in your area, it's mainly farm ground. Mm -hmm. But do you see on on the marginal land, do you see more high tensile fencing in your area? Yeah, yeah, I would say most of the fence, especially new fence, is high tensile electric. There's some oh, yeah. old barbed wire. There's a lot of old barbed wire, I would say, that's falling down and stuff. But most new build fence is going high tensile electric. And But there's a lot of pastures that sit vacant for a year or two. They just don't have anything on it. Not a lot, but there's still a few that don't even have oh, yeah. cattle or they're hayed off every year or something like that. Yeah, the ones with fence are mostly high tensile electric. Which I find interesting. In my area, you don't see any high tensile fence. Yeah. And I talked to... It's all five or six strand bob wire fence. Yeah. There's a guy, Colton Munger, who I've had on. He's a son of a cooperative producer out in Nebraska. He's a fencing company. And he says everybody builds new is still barbed wire. Everybody wants oh, yeah. red brand is, I guess, maybe a popular brand. Oh, yeah. yeah red brand barbed wire or something yeah. like that. Yeah. It's R just... Is it red top brand? Something, I'm not red sure. Brand? Something like something that. Something like that because... Actually, I know because, or I don't know the, the correct name, but we're putting up some goat wire, and um, that brand's always a little bit higher. It's really nice, but it's a little bit yes. higher than some other brands yeah, we look exactly. at. Yeah, exactly. That's what it sounds like, but, and I guess people want quality, and that's maybe fine, but I don't know. I've talked to some folks who are doing stockers, like backgrounding yearlings and stuff like that, and they've had trouble with barbed wire. They'll just sit and rub and... But high tensile electric oh, yeah. sounds like it's more effective for some of those guys too. So I don't know. Seems to me like, but then high tensile electric has its challenges too, no doubt. But yeah, it seems like the logical and much cheaper and simpler option to build for sure. Oh, yeah. 
I, I think it's just a paradigm shift for people. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad, well, we, we tried, and this is my bad. I put up a few, a two wire high tensile fence and it didn't work, but that's not on the fences part. That's on my energizer here at the home place. And the way I had it ran, it kept grounding out on me. I just didn't do a good job with that. Mm. So I take full blame for that. But now dad thinks it's crazy to even consider it. Yeah. Which in that context, it was, it didn't work. Yeah. I'd have to do some things better. Sure. Interesting. The goat fence you were talking about, is that like woven netting then? Yes, with like 12-inch stays. Okay. So that's that's enough of a hoe or wide enough that a goat with horns can pull its head out sure. okay. without getting it stuck. Because yeah. if you're using real regular field wire with, what, six-inch stays, mm. they'll get their head in. Sure. And if they've got horns, they can't get it back okay. out. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Now, that fence, I w- like the thing that scares me about sheep is and, and goats and stuff, too, is the perimeter fence and keeping them on the property. They said, it, I've always heard people say, if, if the fence will hold water, it'll hold a goat. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's pretty high bar to set <laughs> fencing but i know that fence is kind of like barbed wire it's it's tough to install and expensive and it, my experience with goats it's true now sheep are much easier but that's a different topic mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah sure sure now one thing you mentioned about your properties you're grazing smaller acreages mm-hmm. in general are you moving the whole herd so you're doing whole herd and managing like one mob, yeah. or do you have multiple herds spread out you're managing? Yeah. No, and that's something we've questioned what the right thing to do is. I think I had Alan Williams on my podcast. I think it was him that had said that, oh, yeah, you should run everything in one group and move them from site to site. And I just I just don't see that being efficient uh, with such a big Hell herd, yeah. especially with calves trying to move cow-calf pairs from farm to farm to farm. We'd bring 230 pairs to a 30-acre field and be off in a couple of days and have to move them on to the next one. Oh, yeah. And they're 13 miles one way from home, and another is 10 miles another way from home. So we've mostly got groups on different farms. There's one, like, cluster of farms close to home that we might have. There's three farms, and we might have one or two groups that we move between those three farms. And then there's four farms and a cluster over on one side that we might have two or three groups. We move between those farms. And then there's oh, the one yeah. that's north 13 miles that we just have one on that farm. But uh, so we're probably running five or six different groups at a time. But uh, which saves a little bit, but is it's not it's not ideal. I would love to have everything in one contiguous group. That would make life so much easier. But uh, and, and then with management, like the home farm, we'll move them one or two times a day because they're right there. But those ones that are 10 oh, miles yeah. away or more. We're maybe only moving them every two or three days just because we can't justify the drive time, the labor to do daily moves. Right. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. And I, I struggle with that um, one mob or multiple mobs. I've got my herd. Dad's got his herd. We keep them separate. Mm-hmm. But then I've got some lease property. And what I'd love to do is walk them between everything yeah. because mine's not spread out as far as yours. Sure. But... There's just some limitations there that I'm not able to. So yeah, it's a debate I have in my head too. Except I'm working with much smaller numbers. Sure, and well, I don't know about your area, but a lot of those grazing-based areas are still like all the farms and all the fields. Are they fenced? 
So like roads are pretty much like alleys? Yes, basically, yeah. yes. Out, outside of just a, a handful of properties. Yeah. Like um, moving to one place, I have to fence a, or I have to run a poly wire a quarter of a mile. Okay. But outside of that, I'm just doing driveways. Yeah. That's really nice because ours, everything is corn and soybeans and fence rows were pulled, fences were pulled out many years ago for most. So there's, yeah. if we get 200 cows it's running real... through a neighbor's cornfield, <laughs> yeah. that's a real miserable day. Yes, that would be. Yeah. Yeah. We don't. Yeah. In our area. Okay. If you go. And then if you go west and west, probably at least two hours before you hit some farming. Okay. Sure. So there's, we're all pasture here. That's, that's nice. Or honey. Neighbors are more understanding of cattle out than. Than a row crop farmer, probably. Yes, I would assume that is the case yeah. because, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. if it's going to happen, if it happens to them, it's only a matter of time before their cattle end out, of, uh, end out on somebody else's property. And so you kind of got to be a little more understanding. Right. Um, I hate to admit this, but just yesterday, was it yesterday, the day before my neighbors called me? Mm -hmm. They're like, hey, your sheep's out in the road. <laughs> So they put them in for me, and then I moved pastures with them. Yeah. Once they were in, but yeah, they're very understanding, and mm -hmm. and like you said, we we told one neighbor he may drive his cows over to us because can't get into his um, working system because of the mud. So, and we can get into ours. So mm -hmm. I don't know if it's going to happen, but yeah, they work really good together, and they're okay. really beneficial. I have neighbors that's not doing row crops. I'm sure that would be a whole different topic then. Yeah, yeah. We've had some bad situations, but that's going to happen. So <laughs> it, it is, yes. Let's talk about your your Red Angus because that's what you're going with now and PCC and sure. how you're breeding those and selecting breeding stock. Yeah, yeah. So Red Angus just happens to be the breed that we've been in, but... I guess I've always been a believer that what's far more important than breed specific is the breeding program and like selection criteria oh, yeah. and the management system that the farm raises them on. And so it's it's kind of funny, like Feral Cattle Company, we have Black Angus, Red Angus, Herefords. And I would say our Red Angus are far more similar in type and, and you know, traits than with the other Feral Black Angus and the Feral Herefords than they are with the vast majority of the Red Angus Association cattle. Like we're just running a oh, different yeah. type of cow. And so, essentially, we're just selecting for the cows that can thrive in an environment within their environment as opposed to needing to adapt the environment to the cow. Because when you start adapting environments to cows, that's where costs go up significantly. You've got buildings, you've got tractors, you've got feed wagons and feed harvesting Hell, equipment, yeah. and overhead goes up, and labor and expenses all go up when you start doing that. And so we've just tried to focus on a cow that thrives in our environment and that's kind of what the whole Faro Cattle Company program is about. And so our cows, I guess, now have kind of the type, I guess, we have is mostly a 11 to 1,200-pound moderate frame, 3-4 frame score cow that's deep-bodied, easy fleshing, low maintenance. That cow that so every cow, had, animal, living being has a certain level of maintenance energy requirement just to live. And right. then... Uh, so a lower maintenance animal can more rapidly meet their maintenance requirements and more quickly start 
diverting energy towards putting on body condition, was, which results in getting rebred. So we have a high fertility rate in our cattle. We're getting bred back with low quality feeds and low supplements. And all of this being the hope being to reduce costs. And right. you know, I, I was just having this conversation with a podcast I'll release in a few days with Alan, uh, Alan Williams, who is saying now his cost to keep a cow managing a cow herd like this is like 350 bucks or 400 bucks cow for a year, as opposed to the national average is somewhere around a thousand dollars. And yet the, oh, yeah. you know, most people are focusing on buying bulls that get them maybe a little more growth or carcass traits or a little better, you know, meat quality traits and stuff like that, that might add a premium of $50 to the value of their calf. And they think that's winning. Well, the type of program that we're selecting for and that Alan, Alan's talking about may not add $50 in value to the calf, but it saved them $700 or $600 in costs. And so that's kind of how we focused our genetics on trying to increase profitability through matching an animal to its environment as opposed to maximizing its production and carcass trait potential, if that makes sense. It does make sense to me. And I do hear, um, in fact, where, where I used to work, one gentleman there, I talked to him about his cattle, but, you know, and I hate, it's so cliche, but he talked about his weaning weights and how big he was, he was selling calves and he was running what was he running? I'm going to say Charlay Simital Cross, but he had some big animals. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and, and to me, that's just focused on the wrong. Well, you, you, you want to maximize is never the, the correct term. Yeah. You want to optimize. Yeah. Agreed. So we want to optimize that income we're bringing in, yeah. but we have control over those expenses. Mm -hmm. So if we look at that and figure that out and actually... And this is something we can talk about when I visit your podcast. But sheep yes. is a very interesting thing when you start considering low cost yeah. versus our cattle. So, absolutely, you know, we, that's all, you're right. That's a whole other conversation that I've been thinking very much more seriously about with sheep and the numbers that they bring in. But yeah, no, you're you're right on. Um, and and there's like I think optimizing is the perfect word. Because I think so many times in the history of any industry, but cattle industry has always been about maximizing something and going all oh, for yeah. one thing. And we can go all one way on the efficiency and maxim maximizing low input and low efficiency too and, and end up with cattle that look like sheep. But what we will oh, result yeah. in then is a calf that's not marketable. And now we've got a right. system that's we're losing profitability because we focused on maximizing grazing efficiency but we have an unmarketable calf and our dockage is so significant that we've lost profit. And so we've tried to optimize, like what is this optimal cow that max is, is optimum in terms of its efficiency and grazing efficiency, but also still provides a marketable calf because the vast majority of our producers that are purchasing, I mean, Kit Farrow and Farrow Cattle Company sells close to 1,100 bulls a year. Most of those producers are still marketing through some sort of a commodity channel either weaned oh, calves yeah. or they're finishing them out themselves and, and marketing beef. And so we can't produce a, an animal that's not going to provide a quality marketable animal. They'll end up, you know, upset and leaving. So there still has to be that oh, optimum. Right. So optimum is a perfect word, you know, that we're yeah. Americans in general probably have this very good thing at when they set a goal, they just 
go even past where they maybe all out, should. Yeah, yeah, all out, hundred percent. And when you consider your cows and where you're going with them, what do you think is the the thing that has the most room of growth for you? The most, yeah, yeah, the most room or the most potential would be a better word for growth in that area. Question, and you know. I don't know if it's a cow genetic type specific thing because like we just talked about, this idea of optimum is that there is a point where you've reached it. And if you keep going for something, right. then you're just moving past. And I'm not going to say that a herd is perfect, but we've been breeding towards what this optimum is for close to 30 years. And I'd say we're getting pretty close to the right type of cow oh, yeah. for our environment. That being said, the big thing that I think we want to try and figure out is and that we've been making some pretty big strides at in the, the last couple of years is our winter feed costs. And we don't have to talk too much about that now because that kind of gets into the what we're going to talk about for the overgrazing section. But it is kind of that winter feed cost and how we can reduce that. Because in an upper Midwest scenario, I mean, that is our biggest challenge is when most people are feeding hay up here for six or seven months. That's That doesn't work. <laughs> you talked about dairy earlier. And a dairy cow has a gross revenue of like four or $5,000 a cow. They can afford some overheads and some feed costs, but when oh, guys yeah. that are dairy retirees move to beef cows and they try to run a beef cow like that, there's just not the gross revenue to start covering those costs. And so we got to figure out a different way to make it work here. That's what we're trying to figure out. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and that um, winter grazing, I'm, I'm excited to have that conversation in a little bit. For your... Summer grazing, are you um, broadcasting or drilling in anything for summer annuals? Yeah, so we have done some. We've, we've messed around with different uses of annuals and stuff like that. Um, where annuals seem to do a really good job is a few things. We have mud season up here, this March-April time frame where the ground is freezing oh, from yeah. the top down. And, uh, and it just turns into a muddy mess and they rip up some ground. And every year we'll have this area that we kind of turn into a sacrifice area that we'll we'll do that with. And and uh, we find sorghum sedan grass and kind of planting a summer annual is a really good way to help rectify that soil and bring it back. Oh, yeah. Um, the other beautiful thing that I really love about sorghum sedan grass is, uh, is using it essentially as like a forage supply chain balancer. Like we've got all this cool season perennial grass we have a massive summer or spring flush. This 60% oh, of our yeah. forage comes in like 60 days. And then we have this summer slump where we have a deficit of grass. And warm season annuals like sorghum sedan grass, they just keep growing without kind of going rank like cool season. We can't just stockpile our cool season grasses and expect them to be there and, and available for us in August and high quality feed. They're, they're going to have lost a lot of right. their quality. And so that's where the warm season annuals are a really nice tool to help balance where we can graze that spring flush, kind of match our cow herd to our spring flush capacity. And then when the summer slump comes and our cool seasons slow down and we're not ready to start the next rotation because the grass hasn't recovered, we can move to those warm season annuals to kind of balance that cool season deficit. And that's been really, oh, yeah. really nice. And, and also it's just really productive. We're seeing in the summer and fall when we're grazing before snow comes, we can get like 180 to 200 cow days per acre off of that. Oh, wow. Um, and so the when we can get that much production on an acre, that really 
that really helps keep the cost down and we can produce a lot of feed and balance that that summer deficit with a relatively small amount of acres, which is really nice. Are you going in and drilling that in? Yeah, yeah. And if it's really torn up from mud season, we might even have to do a little tillage before to kind of oh yeah, just kind of level out the soil. And I mean, there's big tractor ruts, and you can walk oh, there knee high, like two feet deep tractor ruts and stuff. So we'll do a little bit of that um, and stuff just to fix it up. But then yeah, we'll we'll drill. We don't do a lot of broadcasting because in our environment up here there's people who have tried broadcasting annuals into a cool season perennial but we're so far north our cool seasons never really go fully dormant on a very hot hot dry year the cool seasons might be slowed down enough to get some establishment from a warm season annual but most years it probably doesn't so really the only place the annuals can go is on a on a tillable acre that's purely set aside for that and then broadcasting we, we want to make sure we get a really good establishment and good production because this tillable acre is worth 250 dollars an acre so we need to maximize the production out of oh, it so yeah. we'll drill it just to make sure we get a good stand and good production yeah those opportunity costs on a tillable acre is a lot different than when you're talking about yeah. pasture yeah exactly yeah <laughs> that's yeah. that's the big one the land cost is it's rough <laughs> oh yeah i i talked to someone not too far from me, and they've used sorghum Sudan, and they broadcast it where they fed hay, mm. and it it's came up good. Really? And yeah, they they just broad, broadcast it in those. They just not necessarily bell grazing, but they were feeding bells out, mm-hmm. and where those circles of hay that you've got left over that takes two years for it to recover. Yeah, they were broadcasting it in those areas, which looked interesting. In fact, Dad and I was talking about that the other day. We may try a little bit of that. Yeah. Uh, I do have a a old grain drill I could try using a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I know your context, being that far north, is much different than mine. Mm-hmm. But any, um, any advice you have on sorghum sudan grass? Yeah. Well... Like you said, your context is different. So one of the, the learning lessons that we had, I guess, was we stockpiled it to graze in late, late winter one time to try and graze after corn stalks. And we ended up with this 75-acre field of corn, corn, or excuse me, of sorghum sedan grass that ended up buried in snow. And we were, instead of able to get 200 cow days per acre, we maybe got 30 or 40. And you talk about oh, that yes. cost. If you got 300, if you got $300 an acre into cost, and you only get 30 cow days per acre, that works out to $10 per cow day. Uh, so that's a really, really expensive feed source. So that's like one learning lesson we had is if you're going to produce it, I struggle with stockpiling that because uh, it, we weren't able to utilize it that year. Now that happened to be on a farm that is a no-till crop farm, and we couldn't go back and graze it in the spring because we didn't want to mud up his farm. If it was on the home oh, farm, yeah. maybe we could have you know, captured some of those days back in the mud season, after the mud season in the spring, potentially. But, you know, that that was a challenge. Um, otherwise, that that sort, it's a fantastic crop. It's been amazing for soil structure. There's, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of the soil your undies test thing. 
Actually, I think I have, but I can't. Well, I went to the Noble Research mm -hmm. Institute's mm -hmm. Essentials of Regenerative Grazing. Yeah. And it was brought up there, but I can't remember it completely. So sure. why don't you share that yeah. with us? Okay. So essentially the idea behind the soil your undies thing, it, it's kind of silly, but uh, you take a bunch of white underwear, cotton underwear that are carbon-based, and you bury them out in the soil. And, That's right. And yeah. it's kind of a biological, soil biological activity test. And the idea being that your more biologically active soils will decompose and tear up that underwear. And all that you'll be left with is the, uh, the uh, uh, what do you call the stretchy, the rubber band part of the, of the, right, the yeah. underwear. And in a very biologically dead soil, it'll just be pretty much intact. It'll be dirty, but it'll just be intact. And so I've done that on our farm just as a trial. And that sorghum, it was interesting. When I was digging into that sorghum field, I had never seen more earthworms than in a square foot of that that sorghum field. Oh, yeah. And the soil structure, just in one year of an annual, it was this beautiful chocolate cake, granular kind of a, a, a soil structure. And, and aggregation was phenomenal, even better than our long-term perennial pastures. Not, not all of them, but it was right up there. And so I've been amazed with what sorghum can do for soil in just a year. Also in kind of a cropping context, which it sounds like you're not, but maybe somebody might be listening. Uh, it's been really good for in our organic crop rotation because oh, those yeah. sorghum plants grow 10 feet plus tall and just smother out all the weeds beneath this, beneath the canopy. And so it's a really aggressive, fast-growing plant that can really do a really good job of uh, breaking the weed cycle and smothering out a lot of weed pressure underneath it. So we like it for that. It's a really cool, versatile, multi-beneficial uh, plant. But the challenge is it's expensive, uh, and it comes oh, with yeah. its own challenges trying to graze it when you're dealing with 10-foot-tall plants. But those you can you can work around. Yeah, we are – you're the second person in just a matter of weeks that's just sung the praises mm -hmm. of sorghum, sudan, grass. Yeah. So it really – in fact, um, on my desk here, <laughs> have done um, Dale Strickler's mm – -hmm. Managing pasture book. I was looking it up earlier, trying to to gain more knowledge about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm. Yeah, he's been a guest a couple times on the podcast. Has a that fantastic resource, and he knows a lot more about cover crops and different plant mixes oh, than oh, I'll yeah. ever, I'll ever know. I agree. Well, Jared, it's time to transition to the overgrazing section, and today on the overgrazing section, we're going to talk about something that. I know even less than I usually know about stuff. Cornstalk grazing. Yeah. Yeah. Just just to start, I'm assuming it's cornstalks and you're grazing it. That's can actually you give us totally a bit wrong. More context no. there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh yeah, yeah right. Yeah. No, that's spot on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, a couple of things. Like I talked about, my context here in Minnesota, uh, two challenges slash opportunities, I guess. Uh, Biggest challenge is our winter. Winters are rough. We get a lot of snow. And the snow isn't even so much the issue as the ice that comes But uh, oh, with yeah. it. But um, winter feed costs is expensive. And most people in this area are feeding hay six or even seven months a year. And that's really expensive. And we just knew if we were going to be in the cow-calf business long term, even though we have this premium market being seed stock producers, we could continue to chug along and potentially make a profit. But 
to really be sustainable or competitive, we have got to figure out how to reduce our feed costs. And uh, I kind of mentioned both the challenge and opportunity also of our context is we're surrounded by crop farmers, lots of corn and soybeans around. And so all of these corn fields have what a lot of people literally refer to as trash, as their crop residue, their corn stalks, they call trash. And that's a concern for a lot of them. They have to figure out how to remove that crop residue so that the soil can be warmed up earlier in the spring. Most rectify that challenge with tillage. They turn it over, get the soil black so that it can start decomposing that stuff and, and the soil can warm up in the spring quicker. But uh, we look at that as that's a huge resource for us for feed savings. Because uh, if we're feeding oh, hay, yeah. we're at like 2 to $3 a day or even more. But we can do it on corn stalks for 60 cents or even uh, a little less or more, depending on how much infrastructure and work we have going into it. But uh, essentially, corn stock grazing has been the thing that has really changed our business to now where we, we're grazing in our context until the end of January or even into early February, where most people are done grazing October uh, 1st or end of October. And so we're saving three plus months of feed costs, $2 plus a day in feed costs by grazing corn stocks. And uh, that's been a huge asset to us. And it, it really isn't that challenging. It's pretty similar to grazing grass, grazing anything. You just need fence and water and, uh, and right. the cows do the rest. Big part of that conversation is having the right type of a cow that can handle it. If you don't have the right type of cow, you have to be ready to supplement with some sort of protein because corn stalks are essentially dormant. Uh, they're dormant warm season forage. They're just the grass, the leaf of a corn plant. So it's not a super high quality feed. And so two things. One, we've shifted our calving season back to April, May, June so that that aligns their dry period, non-lactating, low nutritional requirements with when we have, when we're grazing corn stalks. And then Two oh, is having yeah. the right type of cow to be able to adapt to them and do well on those corn stalks. But yeah, does that make sense? Hopefully, <laughs> it does. Now, are you using? Are you only grazing your all's land, or are you able to yeah. to lease some land to do that as well? Yeah. So we we do not have enough land of our own to just graze our own corn stalks at this point. So we're grazing on a few other farms. We kind of have two farms that we work with primarily, and one of them. It's, uh, it's interesting. One of them is full tillage, and he wants the ground tilled before the ground freezes. And the other one is a no-tiller, and he doesn't want cattle on the ground until the ground freezes. <laughs> so it, it yeah. works out actually pretty well for us that we just go to the one tillage guy, and we'll graze corn stalks on his as late as we can until the ground starts to freeze. And then when the ground's frozen, you know, or just before, we'll move them uh, off, and, and he'll come in and do the tillage, and we'll move the cows to the no-till guy's cornfield. Oh, field. yeah. And so we kind of balance that. Now, the challenge with that, again, is fence and water. Uh, we're fortunate that the one, the tillage guy, he's right next to our farm, so it can water off of our farm. But the other one is 10 miles away. And so we'll drink out of creeks or drink out of streams or tile lines that he has at his farm, and that fixes the water issue. But the fence issue is the other challenge. And it, see, it can seem pretty daunting to put up a fence around a farm. Like, uh, I mean, building up a fence and then we'd have to take it down before the following spring so that they can plant their crops and everything. That seems pretty daunting. But 
realistically, we've been able to put up a single wire high tensile electric fence around a, we did 180 acres one year. I think two days we built it and we took it all back up in one day in the fall or in the following spring. Oh, yeah. And so really it was three days of time, but that saved us $2 per day on 200 cows. So $400 per day for close to three months. I mean, we're talking thousands of dollars, well worth the time to build the fence. So that's been the, tr the challenge is the infrastructure, but if you're willing to put in a little work, it's worth the cost, in my opinion. It sounds like it. Now, I have a question for that, you tearing down that fence. So you put high tensile wire. Are you using like a spinning jenny to, yeah. to reel it up some way? Because that wire can get pretty crazy. Yeah, your arm would be burning by the end of rolling up that. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. 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 We, have, we have a, a hydraulic roll reel, reel that we reel it up with. And so, oh, like when we're okay. putting in the posts, we'll have our loader tractor, just a front wheel assist loader, a bucket full of posts. My dad will drive the tractor. I'll be up front and he'll walk. I'll grab a post and then he uses the bucket to just push the post in the ground. Oh, yeah. And we just kind of just walk right along and put the posts in and then we'll pull the wire off the back of the tractor. We just pull the wire out so we can build it pretty quick. And then rolling it back up is the same thing we just roll it up with our hydraulic reel, and then dad's in the tractor and I'm going out front, putting the chain around the post, pulling it out, throwing it in the bucket, and moving on to the next one. So it's pretty efficient with the right tools and the right two bodies, two bodies and the right tools, and you can build or take down oh, yeah. ones pretty quick. Would you, or would use the wrong start to that question, instead of using high tensile wire and posts like that, would poly braid and tread in post not work in that context? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have used that. Uh, we, we pretty much just do high tensile wherever there's a road. So this 180, that, I'm glad sense. you clarified yeah. that 180, maybe a mile of that was road frontage and we put up high tensile around that. And the other was just neighboring a, a neighbor's farm. And I don't know why it probably really isn't any difference because if they break they break through the wire along the neighbor's farm, they can just walk to the road anyway. So it's not, for some reason, there's more of a sense of security with that high tensile along a road, I guess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, well, I, I can see that. Yeah. yeah. But we put the high, t we put the poly wire around that rest and probably would be just fine even with poly wire along a road. Oh, yeah. We probably would be just fine. There's just something well, about a sense of security. And that's one thing that right. Kent Solberg has always said about fencing is that. You build the fence that you can sleep at night with. And there's a lot of truth to that because realistically, we all probably could make do with less fence than we have oftentimes. A well, a good fence with good electricity and good grounding and right spa wire spacing doesn't have to have a bunch of wires or the right or something. Yeah, it's just something personal comfort. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely get that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you started that or th those agreements with those other landowners to, to graze their corn stalks, were they receptive to that or did that take us some time to get them on board? Yeah. Another fortunate relationship thing. One, the early, the tillage guy, he is kind of views the corn stalks as trash and that he wants them gone. And so he's oh, yeah. happy to have us graze them because he generates a little more revenue. I mean, both of them generate a little more revenue. 
off of uh, this. I'm roughly saying if we get 60 cents, if we pay 60 cents per cow day and we can get 60 cow days per acre, that's an additional $36 per acre that they're generating off their cornfield that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And it's taking care of a problem. The no-till guy, he actually, he learned about kind of soil health and was excited about the idea of integrating livestock and using that to turn oh, crop yeah. residue into nutrients. So that one was even less work, but not everybody will be receptive to that. We just happened to find two people who are in the right mindset towards it all that, you know, saw it as a good thing. So that, that helps. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think you mentioned something there right at the beginning that like finding land to lease is always, always difficult yeah. finding them, but it comes down to relationships yeah. mm -hmm. and, and those relationships, however they get started, um, whether that's asking to lease the land, start of that relationship, but that relationship will determine how far you can go with that so much of the time. Agreed completely. There has to be an element of trust and understanding. Yeah, all of that comes through building relationships. That's huge. Yeah. Absolutely. Right, yeah. Yeah. Jared, that's really interesting about the corn stock grazing. That's, like I said, it's not something we do around here. Yeah. But I think that's a a great way to help lower those winter costs and, yeah. and to utilize something that's trash to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. And like you just mentioned something that brought something to mind of you don't utilize it around there. I, I didn't remember. I had, I had forgotten, but there were actually two years where we sent our cows down to Nebraska to graze corn stalks too. And so oh, oh, yes. cows can travel to do this as well. Um, you know, we don't, we, we sent them, all the way down there and paid a custom rate per day and paid the trucking and between the trucking and the custom rate, the cost worked out to maybe a dollar fifty, a dollar sixty per head per day, which was still saving probably a dollar compared to feeding hay at home. And oh, we didn't yeah. have the hassle of having all the cows at home. <laughs> so you oh, know, yeah. that you know, that's uh another thing of relationships. We happened to know somebody who knew him and stuff and that helped. Oh, but yeah. you know, if this is something that's not in a particular person's neighborhood it doesn't mean it's not an opportunity that couldn't work. And we sent them 500 miles and it worked. Maybe you're a little closer. Maybe you're within 200 miles of a cornfield that it could work on. And that could oh, be a yeah. really good opportunity for some. So. Yeah, that's that's great out-of-the-box thinking there. Yeah. 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 When when you did when you do the cornstalk grazing, are you, you you're oh, stumbling on my words. Look at that. You're making it so far into winter without feeding feeding hay, but you're still having to feed some hay to finish up the winter. Yeah, yeah. Usually, like four out of the last five years, we've pretty much been able to hit that last week in January, right up until the first oh, week yeah. of February. Oh, very good. So we're feeding still February, March, April, and then early May, depending on how early the grass is ready to grow. So three months, three and a half oh, months, yes. uh, we're feeding hay. Yeah. And actually, are the, you buying hay and bringing it in? Sorry about no, that. No, no problem. Uh, we, we make some of our hay and we buy some of our hay. And this year is actually our first year trying bale grazing corn stalks. So I don't oh, know if this okay. is a thing we'll be we'll like or not. But like I said, usually the reason we're getting off of corn stalks is because the uh, the snow and ice get too deep. This year we had to take them off of corn stalks because it was too muddy because it's so warm for some reason. Oh yeah, but. Uh, 
but we're we've actually made some cornstalk bales off of a neighbor's cornfield and we're feeding that to our cows now which is the first time trying this and so far it seems to be working pretty good and it's cheaper than hay so we oh, may yeah. have to continue to do that in the future we'll see interesting yeah be yeah. excited to learn how that um, wraps up for you all and how i'm excited to find out, out as well <laughs> Jared, it's time for our famous four questions. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests. And as we were talking about um, before we got started, I stole that off of the Bigger Pockets podcast, so don't tell them. <laughs> I won't tell. Our first question What is your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? Yeah. So there's a bunch of them, but you ask for the one. And my favorite is. Uh, the Turnaround, A Rancher Story by Dave Pratt. Oh, yeah. And it's not specific to, part of it is grazing grass, ecology, part, but a large part right. of it is business, uh, of a ranching, a grazing grass business. Just a fantastic written book. He wrote it in a story too, so it's not like a textbook. It's super readable. I'm, I really enjoy reading when I get time. I don't often get time, but this was a book I picked up and I just read and just kept reading because it was just really really good i think i think everyone who wants to run a grazing grass based business should read i i think so i think anybody who farms probably needs to read it yes we're <laughs> too often the business side of farms is forgotten so yeah. you know ranching for profit does a great job with that um i i probably was introduced to that book from a guest on the podcast but mm -hmm. i really enjoy that book and, and the information in it I, I wish it got a little bit deeper, but it, it definitely gets a yeah. gets you thinking about it. Yeah, they get you. That's how they get you to the school. If it was too deep, you wouldn't. I, I know, <laughs> and I need to go, and I haven't. Uh, it's just well, they have uh, one right there in Oklahoma, soon. even so, you wouldn't even have to travel too far. That's where I went to my school, there, Oklahoma City. Oh yeah, there's one coming up in Oklahoma City, not too far in yeah. the future. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you came down to Oklahoma City to go to your school? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, not that it's too important. and I shouldn't be promoting them. They get enough promotion and plugs through different podcasts. But that venue <laughs> they, has they an open bar in the evening and fantastic. So if you want to go to a good one, they have oh, a good school. Yes. That was just a good venue. <laughs> well, that is an excellent resource, Jared. Yeah. Our second question, what is your favorite tool for the farm? Yeah. I don't know if you consider a four-wheeler to be a tool, but that makes life so much easier to get around and pasture and whatnot and haul all your posts and reels around. So I'm, I'm going to have to go with four-wheeler. I think that's an excellent answer. In fact, I don't have one right now. Oh. Um, I use my pickup and I walk. Okay. But that is on my short list of things when I decide I shouldn't buy any more income-producing units, any more cows yeah. or used. Um a quad, a four-wheeler would be great to have. Yeah. Um, I browse the listings occasionally, but I haven't pulled the trigger yet because yeah. I'm like, well, I could buy a cow or two more. Yeah, well, that's so, exactly. You can buy several, for, especially if you look at things like the side-by-sides. When I say a four-wheeler, because oh. like the side-by-sides are like cars for a tenth they, of the, the the actual mileage you can. Right. I, I agree. I struggle with that because... My parents have a side-by-side, -side and I love using it. And I think, oh, that'd be so nice. But then I look at the prices. I'm like, a four-wheeler will do what I need it to. Mm -hmm. Of course, 
twice a year, three times a year when my wife goes out with me a side by side would be really nice. But yeah. But she she is not going out there to help me work. She wants to go out there and look and probably the pickup serves that purpose better. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I look at those prices and I think, well, maybe I should look into a used Jeep mm-hmm. to give me some of that functionality. Yeah. Um, I haven't haven't got far enough down there to to start that process, but that's where my mind goes because those prices are, in my mind, outrageous. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I drive a nothing special 2000 F-150 I bought for 7500 bucks, and I'll get 100,000 oh, yeah. miles out of that thing based on the miles I bought it at. And that's seventy five hundred bucks is like a third of the price of base model side by side, and uh, and yes. that side by side you'll maybe only get ten or fifteen thousand miles out of it, and you can't drive down the road legally too far with it and stuff. I mean, man, there's yeah, there's a lot more. If you're looking for fun and it's a toy, that's one thing. But I'd say it's pretty hard to justify as a necessary tool in a grazing based business. Our third question, Jared is what would you tell someone just getting started? Yeah. So this is something I I think one of the best things of a grazing grass business is the fact that you can run this business with little to no overhead. And I just talked about a four-wheeler being one of the, my favorite tools. <laughs> so I get that, that that's maybe a little hypocritical, but if you compare to like any other business model in agriculture, like row crop specifically or feedlot or something like that, you got so much money in buildings and equipment and oh, tractors. Yeah tens of, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars where you can get into a grazing business with a few hundred bus, bucks and posts and reels, and that's mm-hmm. it. And you can walk. I We have a couple farms where oh, yeah. I have walked because we have these eight different farms. We don't have a four-wheeler on all of them. I do some walking too. You can start like that with just a few hundred bucks and posts and reels. And if you want to get a little crazy, you can buy a four-wheeler for a couple thousand bucks and you know you can expand your fleet over time if you want but a lot of the things that you think you need to get into a cattle business like a big tractor or a truck and a trailer you need a one ton dually and a 30 foot gooseneck i mean those are things that are nice but you can make do without for a long time uh, you oh, can hi- yeah. hire a lot of that work done pretty reasonably especially starting so i'd say be careful with buying things if you think you need something start just start without and buy what you actually do need. Find you need in a couple. And over time, use profit to buy things that maybe make your life a little bit easier. But don't don't put yourself in a hole that you can't dig out of because you wanted to buy something that you probably shouldn't have at the start. <laughs> oh, yeah, I completely agree. Um, I love the Profit First book by Mike uh, Machute. I can't even say his last name. Okay. I practice it because I know I bring it up every <laughs> once in a while. Uh, and then I'm reading a book, a Million Dollar Weekend right now. And one thing he's big about is you got to get that profit initially. Yeah. But yeah, you get you got to start turning profit. And grazing has a very low bar for entry on materials. You got to have some knowledge and you can get that knowledge. But, you know, some wires, tread in posts and poly uh, and a... Real, you can do quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and the, there's even a spectrum in, in polywire and posts and stuff too. I mean, you can buy the two dollar a post fiberglass post from Fleet Farm, and the some of my favorite reels are the electric plastic electric cord reels for seven bucks at Walmart. Oh yeah. I mean, you don't have to yeah. go to the 
Gallagher step-ins and the big hundred-something-dollar Gallagher geared reels to start either. So, yeah, there's a you can get by real cheaply to start if you're trying to operate on a budget. That's yeah, one of my favorite parts about this business. Yes, I I completely agree. Yeah. And lastly, Jared, where can others find out more about you? Yeah. So, if if you want, you can listen to my podcast, the Herd Quitter Podcast. Um, you can find that wherever folks listen to podcasts. Um, then they want to follow me specifically. Well, there's social media for the Herd Quitter Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. It's Herd Quitter Podcast. Otherwise, Jared Lumen on Twitter, now X, I guess, or or Jared Lumen on, on Instagram and uh, Facebook. Very good, Jared. Appreciate you coming on and sharing about your journey and what you're doing. Really appreciate it. And I enjoy your podcast. Oh, thanks, Cal. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for for the opportunity. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, Go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. Until next time, Keep on grazing grass.